Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It is good to have you here in the house of God on this Palm Sunday. We are now in the last uh, Sunday of the Lenten season, and we're going to spend some time in Matthew 26. So if you have your Bibles, turn there for uh, Matthew 26. Uh, if you've spent time in church, in, in the church worldwide, you know that on um, Palm Sunday, typically, we read of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I'm actually really thankful that uh, the lectionary, which is our, our Bible teaching plan that we have as, as Anglicans, gives us an opportunity to uh, go with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, today. And the reason for that is that Palm Sunday can be very uh, confusing uh, for Christians. I, I grew up in a non-denominational church that uh, was kind of trending toward the charismatic. And so um, charismatics love to wave things. And Palm Sunday was like, you know, it's like the wavingest day of the year. Um, and so people were always, you know, the palm branches and, you know, you're ducking and watching out that you don't get hit in the face with a palm branch. And the, the confusing thing about Palm Sunday is that we, we get pumped for it sometimes as Christians. And what Palm Sunday is about is the resolute nature of Jesus and the fickle nature of people. And, and that gets lost sometimes. Uh, the truth of the matter is some of the very same people who were waving branches and saying Hosanna also shouted later, crucify him. Uh, also said, may his blood be on us and on our children. And while the text is not utterly explicit that those, all those people uh, did the same thing, I know that that's true because I do that. There are times in my life where I am waving the branches and super pumped. And then there are times in life where the cost of following Jesus is really scary and we'd rather distance ourselves from that. And so Palm Sunday is about that. I, I just want to encourage you when you read your Bibles, the best way to read the Bible is to look at Jesus and then look at all the people around Jesus and recognize that the Bible is about Jesus, but it's also about us. It's about our own vulnerable nature. And what we're going to read now, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane time, actually tells the exact same, precise same story that the triumphal entry tells, but it does it in a way that is so crystal clear around what's going on. It's harder, it's harder to miss it, basically. Um, so we're about to read 10 verses in Matthew 26, and I just want to say to you that um, here are two things that have just happened prior to this prayer of Jesus. Um, number one, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. Jesus doesn't know it yet. Um, the disciples don't know it, but Judas has agreed to betray him for a small sum of money. And Peter has just said, um, I will follow you anywhere. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, actually, Peter, before the cock crows three times a day, you, you're going you're gonna to betray me. So this moment picks up on the heels of betrayal and um, Peter, this, this well-intentioned, um, the patron saint of opening his mouth first and then realizing later, um, it has been uh, told by Jesus that he's going to actually wound the heart of God. Peter's heart is deeply wounded in this place as well. So with those things in mind, we're going to read and then pray and then spend some time in the Bible. Uh, Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. 
And then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for ears to hear. Father, we, we ask you to help us to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. We pray today that on this Palm Sunday, the, the beginning of Holy Week, that you would help us to follow Jesus. Help us to say yes to Jesus and the path. Help us to recognize that you, Lord Jesus, don't just lead us into uh, bright and sunny places, but there are times where you will lead us into confusing places, hard places, frightening places. Jesus, as a wounded pilgrim, I am so thankful that in this moment you teach me and us how to be fully engaged in things we would rather ignore. Have mercy on us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The early church taught us that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And yet our functional theology, many of us, is of a, of a Jesus that just sort of floats his way through life. We don't say that, but we act as if it's true. And so for many of us, it's really hard to meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane because it's unsettling, it's uncomfortable. What Jesus experiences in the Garden feels probably even to you, if you were honest enough and bold enough to say it, feels like something scary, maybe even something weak or wishy-washy. And so what we tend to do uh, as people who've spent some time in church and who are also uncomfortable with grief and loss and confusion and fear is that we tend to like just go right past things like this. And so I want to tell you today that we should not and ought not, not, not do that. Any worldview or picture of Jesus that does not allow us to see him as one who threw himself on the ground in the garden is an inadequate view of Jesus. Any worldview that does not allow us to see Jesus as one who throws himself on the ground, that's what happens here, is an inadequate view of Jesus. We're told in this passage Jesus is grieved and agitated. Again, Matthew says... He was deeply grieved even unto death. And thirdly, that he threw himself on the ground. Jesus sees the cost of the cross and fully enters into grief. He does not run from obedience. 
He doesn't check out. He doesn't shirk the pain that is in front of him and happening inside of his own heart. And he wants you and me to be the kinds of people who learn to do the same. There's a way to understand this text, and this is really important. So if you think about like a continuum where we're kind of moving along a continuum, the crowds are not with Jesus in Gethsemane. We're told that the 12 are there. Um, So the crowds are somewhere over there. And then Jesus's friends are here. And then he takes James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Peter, his three closest friends, and he asks them to be here. So they're apart from those others. And then Jesus goes even further uh, alone to pray. And we're meant to imagine the crowds are out there in their beds, they're at home. The, the friends of Jesus are here. The closest friends of Jesus go further in. They're nearer to Jesus in his pain and in his grief. And then Jesus is going somewhere. And there's an unmistakable invitation here at the beginning of Holy Week as we learn to follow Jesus, right? That's what we're told in the Bible. Follow Jesus. Christians are those who follow Jesus. And what we're meant to imagine here is that the crowds to the nine, to the three, that we're meant to be moving closer to the places Jesus goes. Now, when the sun is shining and it's good and it's easy, it's, it's fun to follow Jesus, right? Like when you say yes to him, he gives you more purpose. He gives you more meaning. He gives you peace. He, he brings all the good things. But when he invites us to move closer to him down roads that are frightening and scary, it actually becomes really hard. This is a really, really hard story. Jesus is in so much pain. Jesus is going to go there, but he is in deep pain. Learning to do what I'm about to share with you in the Bible has been the hardest work of my life. I learned really early on And I just want to say, like, if you're tired of the dark stuff, like Easter's coming, it's going to be here in a week, but not yet, uh, as Sarah said. So just get ready. It's it's going to be probably somewhat depressing. Um, I think it's meant to be, actually. Uh, This is dark. I've never been good at at being really present to really hard and scary things. I, I learned that from... My childhood is a way to, to, to cope and navigate with some things that were really hard. Um, and so what I'm about to share, which is Jesus in a dark place, showing us how to be in the dark places, is the hardest work of my life. I, I hesitate in some ways to even share some of this because I feel my beginnerness in my bones. It is really hard for me to stay awake. I'm a, I'm a sleepy friend of Jesus. But the Bible is so beautiful. Jesus is so beautiful because even in our sleepiness, he just keeps going back to his friends. He just keeps coming back to them. And I think that's what he wants to do for you and what he does. And, I, and I've experienced him do for me. I think he wants to keep coming back to us 
in our sleepiness. I want to share with you two things that C.S. Lewis says about grief. Let's put those up. I, I love this. Uh, this is from A Grief Observed, which was um, a private journal of C.S. Lewis. He never meant for this to be published. He wrote these words less than a month after his wife, Joy, her death. Uh, and Lewis was probably more honest in this work because he didn't think anyone would read these words. And this is what he says. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing, he says. At other times, I feel like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. Those are such honest words. I remember craving to be in public spaces but have no one talk to me. Just because I wanted to be alone but I didn't want to be alone. And you've probably experienced that in one way or another. Grief is like a blanket. Um, grief is like being drunk. Grief makes us feel odd. It makes us sometimes feel out of step. It makes normal conversations difficult. Grief is a process. We're invited again and again and again as we live our lives to enter into the process where we learn how to sit with pain and confusion and things that seem overwhelming, endless, and unbearable. And so it makes sense that we don't want to do this. It makes sense that we resist it. It makes sense that when the disciples saw something happening in Jesus in this moment, that they were a bit freaked out. They weren't just tired. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. We, we see in, in another gospel that he was sweating blood. He was on the ground. They could hear him, and they didn't know how to handle it. I would submit to you that when... We experience this kind of disorientation as humans. We, we do one of a few things. We sometimes try to fix and solve. This has been my tendency. And one of the things that I'm learning about that tendency, and if you're in this space where when something is happening that's confusing either to you or to someone else, if your instinct like mine is to try to fix and solve, I would submit to you one of the things that I've learned about myself is that in an effort to do that, I'm doing it less for the other person and more trying to shrink their pain down to a size that I can handle. To just sort of make it into a problem to solve. It's an effort sometimes to control. It, it was what Peter did when he pulled the sword out in the garden. He was trying to solve it. He was trying to fix it, but he was terrified. He was, he was trying to shrink the fear down to something he could manage. And when he did that, Jesus looked at him and said, Put away your sword. He said, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't try to solve something that you just have to experience. And that is the hardest thing for some of us in this room. In addition to trying to fix and solve, sometimes we live in denial. We numb ourselves out so as not to hurt. We're tempted to pretend or to get drunk. And finally, sometimes we lash out in anger. And if you're anything like me, you do all of those things in various sequences. 
We'll do almost anything to escape pain and negative feelings. We'll do almost anything to, to avoid the liminality of confusion and grief. But Jesus shows us the way. I would submit to you that in this instance, Jesus shows us the way. And I'm going to show you through the scripture how Jesus engaged. And then I'm going to make it very clear that he's asking us sleepy friends of his to begin to engage in similar ways. Number one, Jesus says, stay awake with me. And what I'm going to say on the back end of these scriptural references comes from Pete Scazzaro, who is one of my heroes, his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you've not read it, you should. Pete says, Jesus asks us to pay attention. He moves toward, so Jesus is moving toward the pain and the loss. He's moving toward the cost of obedience and the pain associated with it. And he asks his friends to stay awake with him. Jesus deals with reality. And I think this is really important for us to hear because um, he invites you and me to be the kinds of people who also deal with reality. Jesus moves toward reality and he looks at his friends, people just like us, and he says, would you pay attention to what's real with me? But it's hard. They struggle to do this. They sleep. But you know the interesting thing, the thing that I'm learning about myself and about you and about me, about us, is that ignoring the loss and the, the confusion, numbing regarding the loss or confusion, trying to shrink it down like Peter with a sword in his hand to a size you can manage to fix a problem that doesn't make the loss and the confusion go away. And so we're meant to give language to the confusion as we learn to stay awake. That's why we read the psalm that we read today. The psalm was very uncomfortable, right? It was about distress and about feeling distress in our bellies and in our bodies. When I went through what I went through, I lost over 20 pounds. And I don't, there's not, there's not a lot there to lose. And yet I felt that wasting away feeling. Two-thirds of the Psalms, many scholars say, are Psalms of lament. They're Psalms that give voice to grief and anguish and sadness. Because God knows it's hard for us to stay awake, he wants to give us language so that we can speak it out in ways that are orienting to us. Jesus remains awake. We struggle to be awake. And I want to ask you the question, do you know how you're really doing? Where are you sleepy? Actually, for me, the, the pathway or the, the breadcrumbs to find out where I'm in grief, for me, are asking the question of my life, where am I asleep? Where am I numb? Where am I not paying attention? Where you're sleepy, that's the breadcrumb pathway to get to where you are experiencing grief. Jesus remains awake. We tend to be asleep. Number two, Jesus says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Pete says, Scazzaro says, we have to learn how to wait in the confusing in between. We hate in between. I hate in between places. 
have a friend who is in this room and will remain nameless who has heard me say the word liminal a time or two, which means in between. And he made a sticker um, and put it in my doorway that just says liminal space. So I step over it every day and I look at a sticker that says liminal space. And he was doing it to, to be funny. And yet it, while it is funny, it's actually a helpful, I'm not going to take that sticker away because it reminds me that when you move from one place to another, it's very confusing. It's this in-between place. Jesus in this moment is like, he's bargaining. If it's possible, God, for me not to go down this road, I don't want to do it. Let it pass. And we get into places in our own lives to where we have to figure out how to exist in the middle, in an in-between place. Jesus is in the middle right now. And I've heard some Christians say, and I've read some social scientists who say the same thing without spiritual language, that in liminal spaces, in the in-between, that's where the biggest and best and most powerful and lasting change in our life can occur. Jesus is in the middle and he's hanging in there and we don't want to hang in there because it's exhausting, it's hard, it's confusing. So what do we do? We want to rush through it. Or we want to retreat back to something that feels more familiar. And when we rush through it, we leave meat on the bone. And I'm sorry for you vegetarians. If you eat meat, you never want to leave meat on the bone. You want to get every good part of it out of there. And when we move through places of confusion, rather than learning to be in those places and trust that somehow Jesus is giving us permission to be in these places, we miss so much of the good thing that God actually wants to perform in us, accomplish in us. But we're not good at grief. Remember Abraham in the Bible? He was told in his old age with Sarah, his wife, that they were going to have a kid. And he was like, how do we do that? So he had a kid with another woman. And that kid was Ishmael. who was a pain to him, a grief to him his whole life long. God promised him a son, Isaac. And he, he rushed and he got an Ishmael. How many of us have Ishmael's following us around where we just couldn't hang? We had a hard time being in the in-between place. Jesus teaches us how to be there. So how do you learn how to be in the confusing in-between? I would suggest that you learn to shut up. Let's make it more spiritual. Psalm 4.4. When you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Extroverts speak out loud and ruminate and stress themselves and other people out. Introverts speak between their brain in ways that stress them out and other people feel, even if they're not giving language. And the common denominator for you, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, is to understand and learn what true silence really means. I love what the scripture says in Psalm 4, 4. When you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Stillness and silence are critical to helping us learn how to wait in the in-between place. I'm learning silence by walking without headphones and just allow myself to be in my body and to move. And then you begin to learn what's going on. 
inside you and around you. Dan Lyons, who wrote a book, uh, was recently interviewed on the podcast Art of Manliness. Man man or woman, I would commend this podcast episode to you because he basically says uh, it's a conversation about shutting up. (laughs) I believe the Lord wants us to learn how to be still. One of the things I'm learning about myself as it relates to this is that um, our grief, our disorientation, our confusion, it's like weather systems and we're more like a mountain and the weather kind of moves in and it moves out. And sometimes if we can be still and not react to it, things feel differently a couple of days later. We at least have a different perspective. Jesus learned to hang in the middle in the in-between place. And he asked you and me to learn how to do that too. The third thing Jesus says is, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He embraces the gift of limits. Jesus, the son of God, embraced his limitation. He said yes to the cross, even if it was something that he asked, whether there was a way out. We don't do well with limits. We are, however, surrounded by our limitations. And I believe that Jesus wants you to see them. He wants you to learn how to recognize and then accept and then one day join with St. Paul in celebrating your limitations. Right? So we have to see it first. And many of us don't see our limits. But once you see it, you can accept it. And then you join with Paul who says, I glory in my weakness for my, my, his strength is made perfect or made strong in me and my weakness. Paul was able to get to a point of celebrating and glorying in his own vulnerability. If we spend our lives ashamed, if we spend our lives afraid, unaware of our limits, we miss so much. We'll continue to hit the wall again and again and again and never know how to get through it. I believe that you are always being invited to come to the end of yourself. You're always being invited to run out of your own resources because that's when God begins. Jesus embraced his limitation. He said, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. And I believe he wants you to recognize the same pathway is available to you. Where are you limited? Where are you out? Where are you to the end of yourself? Where's God inviting you to see that? And finally, Jesus says, get up, let us be going. After all of that back and forth, Jesus asking his friends if they would stay awake, he doesn't leave them asleep. Even the sleepiest of his friends is awakened and they get up and they begin to move. I believe that the Lord for each and every one of us always invites us to become unstuck. I'm going to tell you something that you're going to not experience as encouraging, but I think it actually is encouraging because it's true. Uh, the, The Jews, oftentimes when they would reflect on grief and loss, would use the acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So sort of like, you know, if you think of it like our alphabet, it'd be like A, affliction, B, bereavement, you know, C, crap. What are we going to do? Whatever it is as you go through it. And they, they would use the acrostic for, for this reason. There's always a terminus to suffering. You either get better or you die. That's where it may not feel so encouraging to you. But <laughs> hurt hard enough and, and death's not the worst thing in the world. I ask some of your friends who are facing terminal illness or, or deep loss, like it, things get clear in those places. Death's not the worst thing. 
And so there's this sense of moving through doesn't mean happily ever after always. We're not guaranteed that. I mean, remember Peter's worst behavior came after this, where he pulled the sword out and was like, Wah. God gives us permission to be imperfect followers of him as we follow him. Jesus is always going to ultimately look at you or me and say, get up, let's get, let's get moving. What does it mean for you to get unstuck in some parts of your life right now? Here's the deal with Christianity. There's life on the other side of death and loss and suffering and confusion. That's like what our whole, that's, like, that's our whole deal is that death and then resurrections on the other side. And we're almost there. But before we get there, Easter's coming. We're going to now follow Jesus into the darkest days of his life so that we can learn how to be confused and not lose the plot. And I promise you, if you will listen to Jesus say these four things to you, as you live your life, you're going to learn how to not lose the plot when you're confused. He's actually giving us a way through, but we have to practice the way through. We have to follow him. Resurrection's coming, but we're not there yet. Here's the question I want to leave you to hold. Um, where are you experiencing grief right now? And what might Jesus' experience in the garden uh, have to say to you or teach you? And here, here's the breadcrumb. Is you want to know where you're experiencing grief. Um, where do you feel sleepy? Where are you distracted? That'll help you understand a little bit more about where the grief is, where the hard thing is, where the confusion is. So we're going to spend a moment in some quiet Holding this question, I would encourage you to take a picture of it and journal. Uh, these are great questions to ask during Holy Week. Make Easter mean something more when we know where we're prone to distraction. So we're going we're gonna to be still for just a few moments, and then we're going to come to communion together. Let's be still and hold these questions. Let's begin to ask the question.